Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you like what you've been hearing on the Second Chapter Podcast, I invite you to go wherever you're listening to this episode or to thesecondchapterpodcast.com and leave us a comment or a review. Tell me what you love about this episode or what you love about the podcast in general, or better yet, let me know what you'd like to hear more of in the future. Today I'm speaking with Shelley F. Knight. Shelley is a once upon a time nurse turned writer, podcaster, and community builder who provides expertise in her specialist subjects of positive changes, spirituality, and grief. As someone who recently went through life-changing grief myself, it was such a pleasure to talk with Shelley, who really helps with the obvious. Grief's a part of life, and we don't have to get stuck. We always procrastinate as if tomorrow's a given. And I had many life lessons working at the end of life, and I just think it's a real privilege, you know, a real wake-up call to live while we're alive. Hi, Shelley. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you about the various stages of your career that, that interestingly takes a very not positive in many people's minds topic and turns it around to a very positive thing. As I said in the intro, you started out in nursing. So I'd love to hear a little bit of how you got into that and what kind of nursing you did. So once upon a time, <laughs> back in my teenage years, which are decades ago now, decades, I did nursery nursing. So that's looking after children. And I loved it at the time. And I still love children now. I've got four of our own, but I wanted a little bit more. So I went into adult nursing and I loved it. I was a mature student. I went traveling first. They kind of get all their travel bugs out of the way. I don't know if you can actually get travel <laughs> bugs out of the way. Personally, I think they're going to stalk me my entire <laughs> life, but... <laughs> No, I think the four children's put an end to it as well. It's just like too too much hard work. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, I went into nursing, but I'll be honest, I didn't have to do nursing or criminology. I can't skip that. That's that's really <laughs> interesting. So in my mind, two very different things. Why was there a split between those two things? I find the human mind fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure for all the years that I live, I'll never truly understand it. So I wanted to study it and learn about why people do what they do. But then I also loved the body and the mind connection and was really drawn to nursing. And in the end, the universe chose nursing because criminology was fully booked. <laughs> I do feel like I feel like I've spoken with a lot of people that have this big choice to make, you know, career wise, and it tends to kind of work itself out somehow. And obviously this you said you loved it. So this turned out to be the right choice for you. Yeah, I absolutely love nursing. And I nursed for like many years and I was never like the conventional nurse. I was always a little bit kooky and a little bit outspoken. I absolutely loved it. But I think I definitely loved the patients more than, you know, the night shifts, the, <laughs> the shift patterns, the pay and things like that. It was always the patients and their story that made it for me. So eventually you went into chemotherapy nursing. Tell me a bit about that. You're obviously dealing with very, very ill people. Yeah. So I started my nursing career in acute medicine. So it's not quite as crazy as accident and emergency or ER. So they sort of go through accident emergency, then they come to you and it's acute medicine. So it's a sudden onset of illness. So I found that far more traumatic than chemotherapy. So it'd be people coming in with heart attacks, alcohol addiction, unknown causes you're trying to fix with medication and things like that. And a lot of the time it would be cancer patients or people with cancer yet to become patients. And they'd often die really suddenly. And then they said it's a heart attack. So a sudden death happened a lot. And it was New Year's Day in 2005 when I was working where my mum phoned the ward and said David's died, which is my beautiful stepfather. So I had my own sudden death whilst dealing with sudden death. And really, 
I'd lost uh, grandparents, pets and aunts and uncles and things along the way. But my stepdad was the most amazing man. And it hit me really hard. One, because I was at work and my mum was really bad at breaking bad news. Just like David's dead. Two words. I was like, really? You're a counsellor and you come up with two words. I always feel like that's the way. It's the people that you expect to be the best at when it comes down to the real life situations. It's like, you probably could have said that a little better, but okay. Yeah, here's the news carry on with your shift which I didn't I went home and pulled my eyes out went into shock managed to drive home and things like that whilst it was okay kind of numb and crazy isn't it initially when someone dies but actually I kind of carried on I think that's a very English thing to do sort of you know carry on and chill up and things like that so after a few months the grief really hit me it still does 16 years on if I'm honest um it really hit me but it was kind of you know I talk a lot about the universe like university is my university place but I hadn't been happy in medicine for a while and I'd kind of wanted to go to chemotherapy and hematology and oncology for many years really since my mum had cancer herself I kind of wanted to pay something back but I had this really strange curiosity because I am quite strange if I'm honest I had a strange curiosity that what is it like if you have time to say goodbye because my dad died suddenly and it's like what is it like if you have those months to say goodbye to put everything in order you know to tell those stories so I had nowhere else to go emotionally really so I applied for this job in hematology and oncology and best thing I ever did at the time absolutely loved it it became like a healing journey for me I have learned that actually I wouldn't say anything different that I didn't say to my dad I'd seen him at Christmas he knew I loved him we had an extra long hug which makes me think he already knew he was dying but it was a real healing place for me and I kind of felt like I'd gone home I don't feel awkward around death or dying you know and and I absolutely loved it. So I stayed there for many years. Then I went to another hospital, then I went into the private sector. I just love the life experience. And probably what I'm doing now, like through my book and through my podcast, I love to hear people talk about their life experience or their positive changes after a life changing event. So it's probably one of those small stepping stones way back then. It's interesting you talk about the difference in having time and not having time to process the idea of grief just thinking about chemotherapy obviously people know that they're in a really bad place they have cancer they're but but it's somebody who's trying to to go through treatment with the hope of getting better but I imagine that you saw a lot of people that weren't going to get better necessarily or that the chemotherapy didn't work so death was definitely really nearby I guess yeah I think the thing in life is none of us really think we're going to die we all think it's a bit of a fairy tale and we live happily ever after but we're all going to die. And people are in absolute denial about that, which I find kind of fascinating, (laughs) if that's the right word. But when you have a life-changing diagnosis, whether it's like, I don't know, ME, cancer, whatever your diagnosis is, it becomes real. You know, there's almost like a given expiry date, you know, with trajectories of when you're going to die or how long you're going to live. And there's a kind of collateral beauty with that. You know, like we might fear death. We don't talk about death and we don't don't think we die. But when you're actually told you're going to die or your life's limited now, it's a real wake up call, a real awakening. And I I don't know, I just love something about that. Like, I guess people start to truly live when they know they're dying, which is slightly oxymoron, I know when I say it aloud. But we never think we're going to die. Always hope we're not going to die, but we will, you know we are going to die. And it's like, like, when I went there, my dad died suddenly, like I said, and I wanted to be, what's it like when, you know, you've got more time to say goodbye. And it's kind of like that for the people with the diagnosis, really, like, how am I going to live my life now I'm going to die? I don't know about you, but I'm certainly guilty of saying like, when I've got that level of qualification, or in five years time, when I've got this in the bank, when I've had that many children, I'll do it then. And we always procrastinate as if tomorrow's a given. And I had many life lessons working at the end of life. And I just think it's a real privilege, you know, a real wake up call to live while we're alive. 
Yeah, I remember something that used to frustrate me about my ex-husband was, you know, he was so busy with career, which he loved, but it was always, let's do that when we retire. <laughs> and to me, it's, you know, when we retire, you know, a lot of times it was something I wanted to do physically. Let's go hike this mountain or do this. And it was like, when we retire, could never happen. It could happen in a way that we don't expect. Like, who knows what happens physically to our bodies? And it really frustrated me. And it was funny because I, I recently spent time with my brother and it was just after my father passing. And he said something about the whole COVID thing, which I thought was really insightful. He said, I keep being so frustrated and saying when this is all over and when I get back to my life. And he had this realization that this is life. We might be living from home. We might not be going the places we expect to go. We might not be hugging the people we want to, but we're living. This is all part of it. I absolutely agree with you that you don't think about the fact that you're going to die, at least until someone very close to you dies. But with COVID, I think it's kind of really forced us to think a little bit more about what is life? Because it's what we're doing every day. I think COVID has been kind of what I've seen from my nursing days, that nothing is a given, like live while you're here. We've lost the young, the old, the healthy. We've lost so many people that you never would have thought. So I'm hoping there's been like a I don't know, spiritual awakening or people have woken up. I and mean, I hate this COVID thing, you know, that people say this many people, this many figures. And you think, God, they're people's loved ones. We're not just figures. You know, it's a real pain to what we've all gone through. But I'd hope somewhere in there we'd feel a little bit more inspired to live if we've survived the craziness of, you know, the last year. So if I have my dates correctly, uh, you were nursing about 17 years. So what happened that you decided, I mean, you mentioned your stepfather dying, but obviously that was much sooner than or much earlier than when you decided to make kind of a leap out of nursing or to write your book. It's not really a happy story, but it's my life story. So I... Um lost my stepdad. I want to say lost. I sound, sounds like I went to the supermarket and lost him down like a shopping aisle. I didn't lose my dad. He died. And then just more loss and death in my life, really. I started to have really bad fertility issues. I had like a miscarriage and then our eldest miscarriage, then our daughter, and then many consecutive losses. And it's something people don't know about me because when they look at me and think I've got four children, I think I'm like Captain Fertile or something. But I've had an awful journey where I've lost far more births than I have take-home babies. So I took a career break from nursing initially when I kept miscarrying after our second child, just because I thought this is controversial, so I should <laughs> disclaimer. But I thought maybe it's working with chemotherapy. It's such a toxic agent, like cytotoxic. Maybe it's affecting my fertility. So I took a career break from nursing to try and you know have a successful pregnancy but it wasn't the chemotherapy it was me and I just kept miscarrying and miscarrying and miscarrying so we completed our family that sounds really simple it's far longer than that but we completed our family and it was during my last pregnancy which is horrific I don't want to put anyone off if anyone's trying for a child <laughs> I really appreciate you talking about this because I feel like I don't think that I realized how common miscarriage was until I well until I had a lot of friends trying to get pregnant and suddenly it was someone who could didn't have a baby. Someone who had, you know, one of my friends, I was with her during one of her miscarriages and she had several after that. And I don't, it made me realize how even now it's not being talked about enough. So I really appreciate when people do talk about it. And, you know, obviously it's a person's choice, but I think there's still sort of a shame or a guilt that's associated with it. It's so unfair to women who've experienced it. I really
really, I think it's a, a really important subject to discuss. I think we tend to forget that everyone has a battle going on. So people say, well, you wouldn't know, would you, because you've got four children. It's just like, you know, if you double that and added some, that's the level of miscarriages I've had. So we should talk about it. You know, we do blame each other. I mean, I've got a blood disorder, it seemed in the end, which was causing it. So there's, there's a lot of blame and shame and, you know, body image. And, you know, it's a convoluted thing, really. And it was during my last pregnancy, I was 40, which is considered old here. I was 40. But having had so many miscarriages, I was, you know, going to have one last go. So my pregnancy started off with triplets. And it was just a horrific pregnancy. And I didn't even realise I was pregnant because I just kept bleeding and bleeding. I thought I was having periods. And in the end, we were scanned and there was only one child left. And it was still a horrible pregnancy. And I was on like eight different medications, scanned really regularly. And then we got to the 20-week scan and... I still hate 20 week scans now. Like when we go through life, you still have like a body memory or an emotional memory of saying, and even now when friends and that announce they're having the 20 week scan, is it a girl or a boy? I get so angry if I'm honest. Cause I'm just thinking, is it healthy would be a start because that's my journey. I think there's a certain um, thing they teach you in nursing and it says that when you're talking to a patient like breaking bad news and that you've got to make sure that your face matches the words this, the sonographer didn't do this she absolutely failed at this and she was scanning away kind of gurning like whilst sort of you know carrying on and she was pummeling my bump so much it hurt and I said to my husband there's something wrong and he's like you're just being paranoid because we've had so many losses and I was like I know the body language <laughs> there's something wrong and basically our daughter had a really rare condition and that put her at the odds of one in 80,000 of making it so he was told to terminate her at 20 weeks and I was just like I can't I've lost so many naturally there's a high chance I'm going to lose her naturally if she's not meant to survive I'm going to go for it and um, but I'm a bit of a kooky kid and for years about three years I'd seen that I had a dark-haired daughter to come and that's all I had that's all I had, Kristen. I just had this vision of a dark-haired daughter to come and I just went with it. So I got a second opinion and they were slightly more of a glimmer of hope rather than the termination option that we've been given. But it was really hard. I mean, I'm laughing about it now instead of got a second opinion, but it was what I call a semicolon moment. I thought, do I end my story here or do I find the strength to carry on? I mean, I'm sure people out there, like, you know, people who've attempted suicide and they hear, you know, the survivors will understand this. It's like, it doesn't matter who you have around you. I have the most gorgeous sexy husbands really cute kids you know we're abundant in many ways but in that moment I had this ticking time bomb of a bump and it just seemed too much so I'm really open you know I've never had depression in my life which is slightly almost contradictory I've never had depression or anything but in that moment in that pregnancy it just felt too much and I did consider ending my life story however there is a happy ending she is six if anyone's about to tune out she's six and she's amazing she's a little earth angel but from that when I made the decision to carry forward I thought I can't carry on with my current mindset do you want me I've got an upper level and so I tried every piece of kooky poo I could try I was going to say SHIT but every kind of kooky thing I could because I thought the medical people don't believe me so I'm going to go down the spiritual and I went all out I did meditation laughter yoga calling on miracles psychic surgery Reiki healing anything and everything I tried uh, along with the original vision that I had this dark haired daughter to come and she made it I mean she's amazing and because I'd made it through that pregnancy and everything, I thought, hang on a minute, there's something in this. So that's how, <laughs> 10 minutes later, that's how I come to write my book. <laughs> Positive Change is a self-kick book. We all get stuck in life. We all experience loss. 
And it doesn't have to be like a loss of a pregnancy, a loss of a loved one. It can be like loss of purpose, confidence, dreams, finances, health. You know, we all have what I call mini deaths. We all experience death and loss. Someone needs to say, hang on, try this, try that. My book is like 300 pages of anything. So one will say like, slow down. What is it you want in life? One will say, stop being lazy. Choose one thing to do today. Because there's no one way. You know, it's life. You just got to try things each and every day and carry on. Yeah, I love that you called it the self-kick book because I feel like the word self-help together kind of has this uh, connotation. But the idea that, yeah, just this little, these little things that give you a little kick. So how did you come up with that name? Yeah, well, I kind of Googled. You have to Google most things in life, don't you? Sort of book titles, health ailments, anything. (laughs) So I Googled it and it was all those like positive thinking and positive mindset. And there was just like thousands of them. And I don't want people to just think it. I want them to take action. So it's like positive changes. And I just thought, I've got slightly warped humor, if I'm honest. I don't think I'm really that helpful, but I will kick you in the right direction. And it is a kick. It's got that extra something. So when I'm like on Twitter or Facebook and people say, oh, what's your book about? Why self-kick? It's like, because I'm not here to help you. I'm here to kick you. You need to take the action. I think it's interesting too, because, well, recently I feel like the words toxic positivity have come together. And I feel like we're both really positive people. People who have said, you know, a little quote or a little kick in the right direction can be really helpful. But obviously you mentioned before that you've never been depressed. And there's a difference between someone who is clinically depressed and that little self-kick is not going to help. And somebody who can take those small steps. Is that something you've thought about along your positivity journey? Yeah, there's a chapter in Positive Change Yourself Kickbook. There's probably quite a few chapters in there. And it's like, if you've only ever known negative or only ever known trauma or childhood issues that you've not overcome, you're going to need more than a book. And if I say like today, you're going to do 10 positive things. I don't mean the book. Don't worry. It's not going to resonate with you, your soul, where you're at. And the idea of the book is... There's like 300 different little tools and stories and quotes. Find what works with you because it's unrealistic. I mean, like, yes, I think everyone wants to make a positive change or a good 90 or percent want to make a positive change. But it's a different starting point for everyone. But if you are clinically depressed, and I'm sort of like, write a love letter to your body. How do you feel today? You'll be like, F off, Shelley. Everyone wants a self-help book. Some people want talking therapists. Some people want medication. I'm just a little bit different. I'd rather have meditation than medication. But you know, always find your own path. And if that's not positive changes, if it is a doctor, then always follow that. So the book came first as far as this next step in your life. Yes, the book came out. (laughs) I'm laughing because I know how it came about. So it came about from the Daisy journey, my daughter's journey. And it's loads of tools. And it's tools that didn't work for me just because they're hilarious. Sort of when I tried to do uh, laughter yoga, but I was heavily pregnant and it peed myself. Laughter yoga? I think it's laughter yoga, laughter therapy. And you have to false laugh because the brain, whether you laugh like genuinely or artificially, the brain doesn't know. It just picks up like you're laughing. So you create false laughter and it has a healing benefit. That's interesting because I coach triathlon. So in triathlon, one of the things that helps relax your whole entire body is if you smile. I mean, this isn't in triathlon specifically, but tip to runners, smile, and it actually does relax your whole body. Obviously, the same kind of the same kind of thing happens, you know, your face muscles from smiling, it does make you more relaxed, it makes you more happy. Laughter, real or fake, can actually do something to your body. That's really interesting. Yeah, it releases the same hormones, the feel-good hormones and things like that, because your brain can't differentiate between the two. So yeah, I was doing this false laughter workshop and I was heavily pregnant and nearly wet myself. So I've I'm you know, I'm kind of thinking, oh my fault has got nothing to hide really. So I tell people I nearly wet myself, good luck with your attempt, you know. <laughs> So yeah, the book 
came out with all of the lovely uh, incontinence and that within it. And that was November 2018. And this is where the change started to happen. Not the menopause change. That's another story. Um, <laughs> the change in my career. The change started to happen. Let me clarify which change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do have to clarify that on this show. Yeah, it's when I said my age of, you know, late 40s. Not that change. That came later. Yeah, so it's November 2018. And I returned to nursing. So I took a career break from nursing and I returned. And then I remember why I'd left. I'd come a lot calmer. I'd learned a lot more life lessons. I'd been a lot more spiritual. And I'd gone back and it's like, wow, people are really judgmental. You know, they really criticize. And we often see people in job. And I describe them as the people who are got one of those faces that says I'm only here to pay the mortgage they're looking at the patients and their colleagues and they possibly hate them but you know they've got to pay the bills and this is the only thing they're ever qualified in and there was loads of people with the faces that I'm only here to pay the mortgage lots of judgment people saying well you know you nurse for so many years before you should remember this and it's like I've taken like a 10-year career break <laughs> I can't remember my own children's names most days due to baby brain do you know what I mean <laughs> and it was really judgmental and soul-destroying so I went on to agency nurse nursing so I could just dip in and out get my strength but then this niggle I'd had for decades was that I've always wanted a spiritual career and I don't know what that really looks like but it sounds lovely doesn't it you mentioned spirituality a couple times and I feel like that's a scary word to me I think it's a scary word to a lot of people because as someone who grew up I don't want to say I grew up religious but I guess I did kind of grow up religious because I got really involved in my church because I wanted to sing in the children's choir (laughs) and then kind of walked away from religion and obviously religion and spirituality are two different things but I would love to hear a little bit more about the spirituality side of it as well or, or what led you to want to have a spiritual career so I'm, I'm not religious and kind of grew up in a Christian household. But yeah, I don't class myself as religious at all. I'm what I say, like, I'm into spirituality. And for me, religion is like a dictated kind of way of life or dictated belief. Whereas for me, I think like, maybe in a nutshell, you could say like religion kind of from my experience growing up a Christian was religion is about behaving in this life, otherwise you go to hell. Whereas for me, spirituality is what I embrace, having feel like I'd already been to hell and back. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in hell. I think life is challenging and it's quite hellish so I embrace spirituality and for me you know I don't wear tie-dye clothes I do burn a lot of incense though for me it's a daily practice so I wake up in the morning and before I even get out of bed I just sort of give gratitude for five things five things I'm grateful for and why and it could be like my loving husband next to me because he didn't snore last night it could be that like you know sometimes it's just because he's with me and he's really supportive but if he doesn't snore that's a bonus you know and it's just like thank you for my good night's sleep because I've had really bad insomnia I haven't slept for like 12 months and I'm just starting to sleep again so like thank you for a restful night's sleep you know the shelter of the home all things like that so like five things I'm grateful for and why and then I get up I do breath work and then I do yoga and then I do a tarot card reading for a little bit of insight of you know what's ahead for today and so to me it's like a daily routine but for me it's spirituality just keeps me from never hitting rock bottom it always just keeps me there and it's just like a sense of peace so when I sort of go through my working day we have the children the dog the fish the husband the business you can lose that inner peace throughout the day and I just come in here and I ground myself or I look at a mandala I've created and it's just you know rather than say it's spiritual it's just my shitty world it's my way of life just always finding something to come back to every night I meditate so it's just part of my day I start on a positive and then I end on a positive and then if you know poo's hitting the fan in between I'm all right 
I took you on that tangent because you're you're mentioning what is a spiritual career and how what did that look like for you? Yeah, so to me, it's well, I can't really say it's not a nine to five because nursing was never a nine to five, but it's when you're working for yourself and not for someone else. Because I think that maybe I've just taken the wrong career choices or the wrong job choices because I've often felt that I was never going to go very far when I'm limited doing the jobs for other people. And it's, I didn't want that. I wanted something for me. And for me, you know, that whole kind of cliche, like if you do a job you love, you never have to work another day in your life. I wanted that. I wanted to do something I love, something that lit my soul up, something that I could manage the hours of. So when I started to write the book about the Daisy journey, although ironically it doesn't even mention, you know, the background of Daisy, it just says that you know, life-changing events led to this book. But when I was writing it and some of the tools in it, I wanted more. <laughs> you know, it's all about doing the meditation and, you know, the laughter yoga and taking time out and things like that. And I was like, I want that. It's like we were saying earlier that we shouldn't be putting off like a more gentle way of life until we've got 5,000 in the bank or, you know, I'm a CEO, got my own business or that grade of nursing. It should never be that. You know, you always have to light yourself up every day, really. And so when I was writing the book, I was like, I want more of this. I want to do more writing, more doodling, more inspiring others, you know, because you're helping others in nursing. But I wanted to help people help themselves almost. Mm -hmm. So I went into this agency nursing, which allowed me the time to have both. I could like write a bit, meditate, be with the kids, write a bit more, bit, and then a little dollop of nursing. And after the book came out, there was almost like a shift in me. I was thinking, and so I resigned from nursing the following year, November 2019. But my friend Lucy always says that once a nurse, always a nurse. And there's an element of truth to that because what I'm going to say haunted me, but what I've carried from my nursing, it isn't just the patients, it's the family that's left behind. And I witnessed time and time again that when the patient dies, the family that remain, their way of life dies. And people are just becoming stuck in grief and stuck in the past and the should have, could have, would have, and don't know how to move forward. And so it's from there that whilst I wasn't nursing, I want to use my nursing knowledge and my grief knowledge from my journey and theirs just to make a difference. So I set up a death cafe here in Northampton in the UK. And I got so much slack for it. People go, oh my God, you're so macabre. And like, what's in it for you? People do anything to make money. And it's like, no, it's a non-profit community. In fact, I make no money. I'm out of money, but it's what I'm passionate about. So I hire a room in a local tapas bar. It's a really lovely energy. And we just meet there like, well, not at the moment because we're in lockdown, but it coming soon. Again. Yeah, coming soon. So meeting this tapas bar and we just talk about death, grief, you know, that's on the agenda. So it's acceptable because otherwise I just find like even my own, my own stepdad, people be like, oh, no, Shelley, but that was like 16 years ago. And it's like, it doesn't stop him being a dad, doesn't stop me missing his humour or his belly laugh, you know, or his gentleness. And so I wanted to create a space where people could talk without judgment, where people can talk, even if it's 30 years, three months, whatever. And what I found is there's so much laughter. Even if we're laughing about the awful thing people say when you've lost someone, like they've gone to a better place or... <laughs> You know, just what if you don't believe in a better place? What if you just want them in this place in front of you in your arms? Because I had horrible things said to me. Like when I um when I was miscarrying, people would say, like, oh, you know, obviously not meant to be. God has better plans. Oh, just try again. So, you know, there's laughter where we share our stories of grief and loss. And friends, you know, friendships have developed from that. And it's amazing. I just think we should talk about. Fear of death, grief, loss, loved ones, miscarriages, you know, we should just, well, we should just talk more than we do in this world, but certainly about grief and loss. 
because I've recently lost, I was going to say lost my dad, but now I can't say it because it, like you said, <laughs> you feel like I took him to Please Tesco and now I can't find him. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, since my dad did die recently, I obviously have a very fresh perspective of my own grief and sort of the grief of my family. And I'm one of six kids and now several grandchildren that he had. And be- because there were six of us, we I noticed, of course, how we all had our own forms of grief. Each and every one of us, of course, have had a different experience about our lives with our dad, of course, and then how we've kind of coped with his death. There was a lot of laughter because when we all get together, we always have some ridiculous story and there were plenty to tell about my dad. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, for me, I feel like because of COVID times and because I traveled to the States and ended up getting COVID, my grief was cut a little bit short. So I feel like I... Definitely, I'm still processing all of this. But seeing my one sister, she's she actually is probably very similar to me in the fact that she got there, she immediately wanted to start cleaning out his apartment and doing this and doing that. She was a, my grief is channeling through this energy of getting things done. My one brother, who I've never thought of as particularly emotional, could barely speak. And it was just interesting, even obviously knowing them quite well, how differently they all and we all were processing the grief. I don't know if it's the right word, but grief fascinates me. It's why I'm so passionate because we do all grieve so differently. And there's so many different griefs, like, you know, we could lose a friend or a sibling or a partner. But it was interesting what you were saying about how you grieve differently, because there's generally two main types or you get a blend. And that's like the instrumental griever or the intuitive. So the instrumental ones are typically the males and they start fixing practical things in their life. You know, your sister was clearing out, you know, the apartment. And that's a very male way of doing it where we can't fix the death. We can't fix life, but we can, you know, sort out this cupboard and repair the car. And that's the instrumental grievers. Whereas women tend to be the intuitive grievers where they're very much about, this is how I feel. And they will talk and talk and talk and talk. They do very well with talking therapies, you know, because they just talk it out and it is the nostalgia That leads me to something that I was wondering as well about the Grief Cafe or the Death Cafe. Good Grief. I love the name of it. (laughs) Um, Do you get people that maybe are more resistant to grieve or to talk about their feelings or to talk about death? I think the people I have are the most courageous souls. I honestly do. Because... They come into the building, we're upstairs in the mezzanine. And for me, and we've done Zoom calls through lockdown and stuff like that, but there's something about the physical action of driving somewhere you don't know, stepping into a building and then going through and up, you know. So to me, they're really courageous. And I think to even get to that stage where you're entering the building takes a certain type of person. I'm aware there will be thousands of people out there in my local villages who are grieving and need to talk about it, but they won't come. So those who do come are very intuitive. They're willing to talk. You know, you don't just sit there and absorb more people's grief. It is a conversational community around that. So we don't really get the instrumental ones, you know, because they're not, there's nothing to do apart from physically come into the building. These are the talkers. And it's really diverse. It's like people have lost like sisters or brothers or partners or parents, but there's a commonality between them all. So whatever your belief and experience to date is, is how you grieve. And that's why I often talk about mini deaths, because whilst when we go through grief, like when my stepdad died, when your dad died, that is, you know, one of the most painful times. And we won't believe it at the time, but we've gone through things in our life. Like I said earlier, the mini deaths where we've had a loss. So we've lost a job or, you know, like a pet's died or we lost a dream or finances or health. And all those little exposures help us prepare for grief. And, you know, when we're there, people start to see patterns in the, you know, that sort of, actually, when I went through this, this is how I felt. And this is how I got over it. And so we're always learning. We're always processing grief, but we're not always aware. And I think we give a lot of our power away as well. 
which is why I wrote my second book, because I'm a great believer that everything we need is within us. I know that sounds really hippie, but I think we've gathered by now that I am a very hippie person. But I do believe that whilst talking therapies, you know, do work for the um, intuitive grievers, we are really powerful beings. And we often, you know, lose that, especially when we're sort of caked in grief. A lot of my hashtags on my social media is always like, you've got this. And I truly believe that we have. So you mentioned the second book, but before we get to that, there's been a podcast and a YouTube channel and all kinds of, (laughs) where did you make this leap from, okay, I've written the self-kick book to, I need to take it to a podcast. (laughs) This came from our teenage son. So he used to absolutely love reading. And then he started secondary school and a little thing, he was given a book of his choice. It got damaged and he took it so badly that he went on to hate reading because, you know, we always think it's the big traumas in life, but actually little things upset us along the way. So he would speak about my book one day. He goes, well, I won't read that now because I don't like reading. He goes, you know, you should do something different. I like make it into a podcast. And it was as simple as that. And but I thought there was real value in that, that not everyone's a reader, but everyone needs to create a positive change. So it started out last March, just before lockdown. <laughs> so nobody was commuting. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the university had my back on that occasion. But um, last March was uh, the podcast. And I just started out as a solo show, just me sitting there with my book, just sharing some of the key pain points I observed in life and nursing and things like that. So it's sort of like, who am I? The search for happiness, self-love, speaking your truth. But as I started to do the weekly episodes, people started reaching out saying, I love your book, love your podcast, but could I share how I created a positive change using my tools? So I was like, oh, yeah, come on. I've done six shows. We do six guest shows and then flip back. Well, (laughs) we've just recorded episode number 50 of the guest shows. It's just taken off. And every week there's a new guest who comes on and shares how they've had life-changing events and created positive changes. And it's been really diverse. First one was a fascinating American doctor who went on to be a stay-at-home mum, somebody who's had a positive divorce, people who have overcome eating disorders, drug addiction, alcohol, heroin, near-death experiences, tocophobia, which I didn't even know existed. That's a fear of pregnancy and birth. Life as a funeral director, you know, how they've overcome their own grief. And it's been absolutely amazing. I mean, I've loved it. And it's only been about eight months old and it won two awards, which I find amazing because, you know, like in life when you go through and you always think, or maybe you don't think, maybe it's how my parents brought me up. You know, you have to work hard for things in life. And I've been having a blast with the podcast. I've, you know, especially during lockdown, just speaking to people every week. Yes, please. And then I won two awards. I didn't work hard at all. I just had a really lovely conversation and I have cried. I've laughed, been left speechless. You know, the human spirit will always fascinate me. It goes back to what you said, do what you love every day and feel like you never work a day in your life or whatever the quote is. It's true. If you're loving what you're doing and you're speaking to people that obviously they're really inspirational people, or like you said, you kind of get the full gamut of emotions. So Yeah. Yeah, And it's beautiful. And like from the solo shows, I did speak your truth. And I'm really passionate about people speaking their truth and always like clarify. It doesn't mean that your words are right but they are valid and so I'm always getting people to come on and share their stories so there was a joint episode where an amazing fascinating woman Vanessa came on and she shared her journey through overcoming drug addiction and then the following week her daughter came on to share her experience of what it was like growing up with parents who are addicts and watching mum go through coming clean. And so two different stories, well, one story, one life story, but you mean from two different perspectives. One's not right, one's not wrong. It's just people speaking their truth. 
And it's just what we should do. It's one of the regrets of the dying is always, you know, live your life, speak your truth. Don't die with the words still inside you. So the fact that I can encourage and inspire people to do that, and they're not easy stories to tell, but the fact, you know, that whole, trust me, I'm a nurse thing, you know, (laughs) has been life changing for me. It's just, I have the most beautiful people in my life. You know, the courageous people that walk into the death cafe, the courageous people sharing, you know, sharing their stories. I'm truly blessed. So you now have a YouTube channel as well. And I think you mentioned to me that it was not everybody is a reader. Okay. Not everybody is a podcast (sighs) listener. So the the next step was to go onto YouTube. Yeah. I listen to uh, certain podcasts every now and then you know you sort of drawn in but it's not my go-to but then because they're such emotive stories I mean I recorded this weekend and there's an amazing lady coming on who actually made me cry on air and I've cried on air before the lady with the tocophobia because that was about fertility and obviously it brought up my own stuff and because I'm crying laughing snotting and anything else that comes if I'm honest there's something I don't know enlightening when you watch it you know, when you watch someone's face on YouTube, you, I don't know, it kind of resonates with you more and you can see the genuine story. So, you know, I know people say, don't share it all on YouTube, just little snippets. And I'm like, if this helps someone, I am sharing the hell out of it. So I, yeah, I do do the whole episodes of Positive Changes at Self-Kick podcast on my Shelly F. Knight YouTube channel, because it's another way of reaching people. There's the book, there's the podcast, there's the YouTube. But if it stops one person from getting to that semicolon point that I had, where you think, what's it all about? Why do I bother? Who's going to miss me? Whatever you're thinking, you matter. And if I can get that message to someone from doing, you know, YouTube, even with my lockdown roots, I'll forego that, you know, if it saves a life. That's just another example of when you're talking about something that's really, it's really difficult, but you can find a way to, to bring a bit of positivity and humor into it. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really important that I share this to the world, lockdown roots and all. <laughs> you get to that point where sometimes your desires have to be greater than your fears. When I started to get feedback you know, like people saying, like, can I come on and share my story kind of thing? That was the first sort of like point for me. I'm thinking it's not selling my book because these tools aren't in my book, you know, but if it's a tool that helps someone, bring it on. And then, you know, the podcast was one way of doing it. I was really awkward. I mean, if you listen to the first episode, I literally sound like a broom handle up my bum. I just sound like, oh my God, you know, my friend sounds, oh, I love the content, but you sound like you shite yourself. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I started to get feedback. Like, thank you so much. I've shared this with my dad, who's really struggling since my mum died. Thank you so much for this. I've been feeling suicidal, but now I'm going to try this. And it's moments like that where you just think, forget the roots, forget the frown lines. You're saving lives. You're changing lives. You're making a difference because we don't know we're making a difference, do we? That's not what we get up in the morning. We think we're insignificant, but actually we're not. I think if we can all use our words and speak our truth to help people, we should do it. You know, lockdown roots, frown lines, the lot, bring it on. And I've got all those. (laughs) I'm with you. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tell me, what is the topic of the next book? When does it come out? So it is positive, but it's about grief. It's called Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. And it's not humorous like the first book. Good Grief is a practical guidebook through a grief journey, whether that is, as we were saying earlier, like loss of health, finances, loved one. And it draws on 30 years in healthcare. And that's not all nursing. I feel like pharmaceutical science, what worked in doctor surgeries, a lot of nursing in there as well, like the end of life. So it starts at the beginning of our life. So, you know, when we're born into this life, into a name we didn't choose in a family. I believe we did choose and a body we chose and things like that. And it goes all through the journey of being born right through to death and then the tools to get through your grief. 
And so I'd observed for years, as I said earlier, why I set up the Death Cafe, that when people die, people become stuck. So I've tried to do a real blend of the clinical and the spiritual. I'll go through how death and grief has changed over the years, because, you know, back in the day, we used to have dying loved ones at home around us. And, you know, we'd sort of like tend to them. There wasn't fear around death. It was almost an honour. And only really in this last century that we've seen hospices and hospitals and we've given our loved ones to like a clinical setting and and there's been like medical advancements and things like that. So we can prolong death almost. So we're having like a clinical death rather than a natural death. There's been so much change. And with that, we grieve differently. So I talk about the different types of grief because when I was a nurse, there was three types really. But now there's like 17 different types of grief. Because I say people are living longer with conditions, you've got that anticipatory grief where you know it's going to happen, but not yet. So you start grieving, but they're still physically here. So there's 17 different types of grief, probably more after lockdown and COVID as well, I should imagine. Mm -hmm. So I talk about the different types of grief, what you can expect from the signs and symptoms. But then at the end of the book, there's the grief voice box. And it tells you how to communicate with someone as they're dying or when they've got a diagnosis and they're dying, like the things to say or the things to do rather than things that we know from earlier you shouldn't say or do (laughs) and then there's also the main part of the book is the grief toolbox and that is everything and it is the a to z i start from i think it's a for acupressure and it goes right through to z for sleep and it's all the ancient tools so like you know essential oils your chakras your yoga your movement sound healing foods you can have and then there's less woo woo stuff Like rearranging the home, you know, breaking up your routine, scheduling, all sort of tools like that are within it. And it's for you if you're grieving or experiencing loss, or if you're supporting someone and fear you're not getting it right, it's like a companion. And it's something I'm really passionate about because, well, obviously I've got a grief death cafe, but I just want people to move on. Because as I said, everyone experiences loss and grief on some level, which means everyone's at risk of getting stuck in life. And I don't want that for them. And I don't think they want it from themselves really deep down inside. One of the things I've noticed that you've talked about quite a bit is the different kinds of grief and not just the kinds of grief through death, but these small deaths and these small, well, I don't even want to call them small griefs because I still mourn my dog that died. Oh my God. I don't know. I was the first year of college. So years and years and years ago. But does it get kind of give you tools no matter what your grief or what your loss is? Or is it really around the concept of death? For me, grief is just the loss of anything with which we have an emotional connection. So there are really strong tools in there for when a loved one dies. But I think it's, you know, a companion for anyone, really. You know, like if a relationship breaks down for whatever reason, that is a loss, you know, because you lose your dreams, your confidence, you know, lots of losses in one thing. Even like if you get diagnosed with cancer, make a full recovery, you still have loss. You have loss of the life before cancer, your loss of hair. Sometimes you lose your sexuality, your job, your finances. Everything in life has a loss connected. And I wanted a book that kind of did that for people. So you're one of the people that I, I don't have to preface this by saying that I know it's cheesy because I know you do like a <laughs> quote. But, <laughs> but to the listeners, I know it's cheesy, but Shelly and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> what quote did you bring for me today? I love the three words, life goes on. And my beautiful stepdad used to say it, and it used to really bug the hell out of me. You know, if I, like I was saying about the loss, if I had a relationship breakdown, or I couldn't afford, you know, this going back in the day, I couldn't afford to buy that vinyl single, or, you know, like something went wrong with my washing, I dyed my favourite, the Smith's t-shirt or something, my stepdad is going, oh, well, life goes on. 
And then even when like his own family died, he'd be like, yeah, life goes on. And a lot of my branding, like it's Shelly F. Knight, life goes on on Twitter and Facebook. But it's true. I mean, he's probably looking down now going, told you, life goes on. And it sounded really crass when he used to say it. And I'm sure some people see it flash up on social media thinking, that's a bit rude. But it's true, life does go on. And that's on the earthly plane. I personally believe in the afterlife, but life goes on. Maybe not the way we'd hoped, dreamed and wished for, but it truly does go on. I think accepting that a different life isn't necessarily a bad one is a really good place to start. The other thing he used to say, which used to really bug us, and this is this is the kind of humour of my family, so I can only apologise really, listeners. My dad used to always say, it'll be all right. Along with life goes on, it just like, you know, again, the relationships, whatever had gone wrong, it goes, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. And I could be sobbing my eyes out, snotting on my T-shirt, and it'd be, it'll be all right. And so when he died, uh, we actually had it engraved on his headstone. <laughs> You were definitely destined to have a grief birthday. <laughs> and we didn't even question it, you know. So, yeah, it's got his name, like David, and uh, the dates and things like that. And at the bottom, it's got, it'll be all right, in quotation marks. Because he'll still be saying it now. Because we are all right. You know, we're not where we thought we'd be. Mum's been single ever since, 16 years later. But we are all right, and it will be all right. My dad, I was really, one of the things that was really hard for me, obviously, was being in another country and not being able to get back in time. We knew that he had been kind of in and out of good health, but we didn't have a long time to kind of prepare ourselves, I guess. He said, I'm ready, but this is not a sad story exactly. So point of the story is that I was really struggling with not being able to make it home. And I didn't hear this personally, but he said to my brother who came to visit, my brother said, we didn't know exactly when he was going to die, but oh, Kristen really wants to get here. And my dad just said, Kristen's a big girl. She'll be all right. <laughs> and I love that. I mean, at the time I was kind of like, that's a strange thing to comfort myself with, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> and I didn't make it home to see him again before he died. But somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm going, yeah, I'm a big girl. I'll be all right. Thanks, dad. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. And the fact that like, my stepdad said it as well, it just seems like really beautiful synchronicity. Like I was meant to say his words. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that seems like a good point for me to say thank you very much for joining me today. You take a really dark subject and bring light to it. And I think that's a really, I hate to say that's a really amazing service, but to be able to take something so dark and just make it a little better for people, it's really amazing. So thanks for doing that. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, wait, I didn't ask. When's the new book coming out? So that's out on the 24th of September with O Books. That's the Mind, Body, Spirit publishing house here in the UK. Fantastic. I can't wait to read it. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.